Hello, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. As always, I want to thank you so much for listening and for the feedback that you write to me and for the reviews that you post on the podcast and YouTube platform. And mostly I want to thank you for listening and sharing because the stories do matter and our listening matters. If you haven't been able to subscribe to my new podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations on Predators in Business, Community, and Culture, it's an expansion of this conversation that really illuminates how these patterns that we've experienced within 3HO are everywhere in our world. And to blame one location as opposed to really seeing the larger patterns that are in play in all aspects of our world, our families, our cultures, our communities, and all of the choices that we've learn to make and not make because of our experience in 3HO. I encourage you to come on over and to listen and subscribe at gurunishan.com. As always, I like to read the intentions for why I started this podcast. Number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught kundalini yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we love them, we believe them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what you are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates, perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and the overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through this community both named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, to process their own emotions, to get somatic therapy and cult therapy and other support as needed, to draw your own conclusions and to be critical thinkers rather than to just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. 
please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. I want to welcome today's guest. Her name is Ratnavali Kar Khalsa, but she goes by Ratna. She was born in India in August 1996, and at a few months old, she was adopted by Guru Namkar Khalsa of Espanola and Sadna Singh of Boulder, Colorado, but it took over a year to actually get to America. At 18 months old, it was 1997, she finally reached her parents in America, who had already adopted another child, her brother Guru Raj Singh, a number of years earlier in 1993. He's currently 29 years old. She went to MPA in 2008 at 11 for sixth grade and didn't return uh, and didn't go back in 2013 for 11th grade for mental health uh, for health reasons. She currently resides in Boulder, Colorado and is a case manager for mental health clinic. After years of experience in psychology, she found the correlation between what she and many kids of 3HO went through and the troubled teen industry to be very, very similar. She's here today to share her story, and I want to say thank you so much for being open to coming on the podcast. Of course, I'm definitely excited to be here. Um, so as you know, I was born in Calcutta in 1996, and then adopted by my parents, Girunam and Sana Singh. It took over a year to get me to America. But once I was here, they were already involved in the 3HL community. They joined in the 70s. And so they had been involved for, they were like some of the originals from the 70s. They mm -hmm. adopted, obviously, your brother in 93, a few years earlier, another child from India, and then you're the second child that they adopted from India. Yes, that is correct. Um, Got it. They joined in the 70s. They got married. It was an arranged marriage by the Searsing side. And they tried for years to have children of their own, but didn't work out. And they adopted my brother. And then they adopted me. And they were in their late 40s when they adopted my brother. So they were on kind of the later side of their lives. They're actually currently 76 right now. So having older parents who were in the 3HO community from the beginning makes me relate to more of my parents' children. I mean, parents' friends' children, since that's kind of how I was raised. You mean that you relate to the children of other parents who joined in the 70s and had kids versus exactly. versus the age of your age demographic, which would probably be kids that were many generations born in or had come in uh, as joiners, but would still be just a couple years in. Exactly. Yes. So I kind of relate more to people in their 40s and things like that with parents who joined the Dharma in the beginning. I kind of had that version. Yes. Yeah, of that her. version. Well said, that version. Because the version really does matter based on the lens in which your parents are operating from, right? 
Exactly. I mean, they took the serious Sam's word as Bible. I mean, what he said went. So, like, some of the younger parents who have grandchildren and things like that are a little bit more lenient. That wasn't my parents. <laughs> and um, so, in lenient in terms of like strict lifestyle rules stuff? Strict lifestyle rules. I mean, I wasn't allowed to wear jeans till I was in fourth grade because my mom felt like it was inappropriate. And that's maybe because she grew up in like the 50s, but I also know it definitely correlated to the 3HO lifestyle we were living. Where I could see what you're saying, where a different generation might uh, have had kids born in the community, yada, yada, but still kind of come from this kind of a little bit in, a little bit out world, as opposed to kind of that more strict original lifestyle. Cause I definitely was one of those kids that we were fighting to wear regular clothes all the way up to fourth grade. It was probably about fourth grade. That was the threshold of choice. Exactly. I remember going over to a friend's house for a sleepover and she was like, do you want to wear jeans? And I was like, am I allowed to? (laughs) I'm like, and then I tried them on and I was like, mom, I want to wear jeans every day. And she's like, I don't know if it's appropriate for you to do that. Like you're wearing leggings and a dress. That's what you're supposed to wear. Wow. And I got that little reshinot cover on. Whenever I came home without my reshinot cover, I got in so much trouble. <laughs> She's well, like, you took, your, you took your hair down at school? I'm like, yeah. She's like, you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> wow. I remember this all too well. So, yeah, I mean, I know some, like, my friend's parents were like, yeah, you can wear your hair to braid at school. Like, it doesn't matter. My mom was like, no, you're wearing your reshing cover. Strict. I get you. Okay. I'm hearing what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and were you going to school in Espanola or? So I went to school from the ages of kindergarten to fourth grade in Colorado, in Boulder. Yeah. Got it. Then my parents, I mean, my parents got divorced when I was in second grade. We lived in Boulder for about two years after that. And then my mom decided she wanted to be with the Sikh community in Española. So we moved to Española when I was in starting fifth grade. Can I pause you real quick and ask, were you with the Sikh community in Boulder? So, yes, my parents were very much involved in the 3HO community in Boulder, even though it was small. Mm-hmm. And they sold the Sirius Sing Saib and the 3HO community, one of the houses they owned, to start the Boulder Ashram. And they actually, they were like, you were supposed to give that to us for free. And they went through the notes and they realized my parents were like, we'll sell it to you. But they were trying to get the ashram for free. And my parents, my dad was like, no. <laughs> Interesting. So you're saying this whole, this went down in the, in three, between 3HO and the Boulder community. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, so they helped build, start the 3HO ashram that was in Boulder for a very long time. And because your dad spoke up, they did get paid or no? Finally, they did. They had to go through all the notes of the meeting and highlight like the fact that my parents were like, we're not going to sell you, like give you this place. We'll sell it to you. But it was a whole ordeal. Wow. Interesting. You know, 3HO likes to keep property as much as they can. So if they can get it for free, they would want to. (laughs) And is this after YB's passing? This was way before YB's passing. So that ashram actually closed down maybe five or six years ago. So it's not even in existence anymore. They sold the property. So we're, yeah, we're talking about early times. We're talking about, uh, this is before you came in. Yes. Got it. Okay. So this whole thing with the house and the ashram is before they adopted you all. Yep. They, they were very much in the community before they had kids. (laughs) Got it. So they helped kind of establish and build this small little community in Boulder. And then, but when, by the time they're, um, you go to grades, kindergarten to fourth grade, and then around the fifth grade is when your mom moves to Española. Yes, she wanted to be closer to her community. Okay. And what does that mean? Meaning, oh yeah, because he was from there. And so he had those connections. And when my parents got divorced, my dad kind of drifted off from the 3HO community. So she my was mom- more strict. My mom wanted to be around people who were very much in the 3HO community. Got it. And where else to go than the Española hub? Right? (laughs) Um, So yeah, I lived in Española for a year before I went to MPA. Went to Gudwara every week. Had some friends there that were in the 3HO community who didn't go to MPA. And that's mainly who I spent time with when I was in fifth grade, because my mom didn't really want me to spend time with people out of the 3 job community, worried about them corrupting me and things. So after fifth grade, I just, well, not decided. My parents had decided that me and my brother were supposed to go to MPA for three years. And then we could decide if we wanted to go back or not. So obviously when sixth grade hit, I knew I was going to India if I liked it or not. I see. And they just made that rule that he goes for three years. And then at this particular age, after you've kind of given it a chance, quote, then you can decide. The serious things I've told parents you want your kids to be proper human beings, you're going to send them to MPA or whatever variation it was. Mm. And they believed it. They thought that was the best chance I had at being a good adult. Mm. So my brother went in sixth grade and then I knew when sixth grade hit, it was my turn. Was it something you knew you didn't want to do? Was it something you did want to do? Were you conflicted? I knew I wasn't ready. I was a very sensitive kid. And I've had trauma 
my whole life being adopted, having my parents get divorced, other issues. I knew I was too sensitive and not ready to be away from my mom. But they thought it was the best place for me. And I remember going to MPA the first year. I remember falling asleep the first day I got there. I woke up. I didn't know what time it is. I didn't know what day it was. I was so freaked out. And I asked somebody. I was like ran around the campus because I didn't know anybody. And I was like, what day is it? What time is it? I don't know what's going on. And they were like, they laughed at me. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm a sixth grader who's halfway across the world from my parent. I can't call her and I'm freaking out. Nobody wanted to help me. And that was definitely the theme of MPA my whole time I went there. Just from the moment it started. Mm-hmm. And I am very passionate about the fact that MPA did not hire proper staff members with good accreditation. Like if the school was in America, you would need degrees and PhDs and psychologists to run a school. But we didn't have any of that. Mm. I went up to Jugget one of the first days I was there. And I said, my name's Ron Avali. And he said, oh, no, that's not how you pronounce your name. He said, it's Rutten Navali. And I was like, no, it's not. The series things I've told my parents, it's Rot Navali, the one who has the brilliance of jewels. And he's like, oh, you're stupid. You don't even know how to pronounce your name. Wow. So, I mean, that was one of the first experiences I had with a figure who was supposed to be, you know, somebody who was supposed to take care of you. He was the principal. And he's been the principal for the entire time of MPA's existence. Is that correct? So for MPA, I'm pretty sure he has been the running principal. I know there's a principal at academics, but he's been the principal of the school. And I don't think he has any accreditations to do that. I'm sorry. I don't hate him as a person. Hate is a very strong word. He is a family. I know he was conditioned to act the way he acted but it doesn't give any excuse for the children that he hurt. And your story matters. That's what I want you to know is that the experiences that went, you went through and what you have to share matters. And um, uh, he was a student of India from early as was his wife. And, you know, keeping this in context that for listeners, you know, it's like, we're all kids of this community and, what is the accreditation of him running a school that he went through India as a child and then kind of maneuvered his way through into quote leadership ranks, but not 
an academic um, history of being prepared for the particular setting you're speaking to, being a head of a school, being a principal of a school, the psychological training, any academic training that, that makes you be able to be in a certified position overseeing other people's children's mental health, physical, academic, spiritual well-being. You're sending your children halfway across the world. You ex in paying an enormous amount of money, you expect them to be taken care of. You expect them to have their basic needs met. Maslow's hierarchy of needs is something that you're taught in Psych 101. And we did not have our four basic needs met. Food, water, safety, and sleep. I and want you to share us some stories of this. If I know you have uh, actual experiences that you went through with these things, no? I mean, I did for sure. Um, I mean, getting woken up for Seva, getting woken up at 5 a.m. to do physical exercises. Um, and that stuff is hard. That's grueling on a young body. Um and what you're speaking to, let me pause and just say you're speaking to a militaristic style of running a school, no? Exactly. And 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds don't need that. And if I understand, the MPA curriculum um, really heavily focused on like yoga and kind of this like real um, organized physical, like physical focused for, for the curriculum. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so I can't speak for schools before MPA since I wasn't there. No, no. I'm just talking MPA because this is your lived experience. MPA, you woke up at five, did PT, which is physical exercise. And then you got ready for school. You went to school. Then you had lunch and then you had mandatory yoga. And then after mandatory yoga, it was outside physical fitness time again. So interesting. Maybe so PT in the morning, you do school and then you do mandatory yoga and then you do more physical training. Yes. Wow. And the, you, the mandatory yoga alone, we already know Kundalini yoga is very intense type of yoga. And then you're doing physical training on top of that mm -hmm. twice. And then we used to have standing at attention at night if you failed inspection or something. So even at your free time after rare Ross, you were made to stand at attention and not move. But in my later years, you were forced to do physical fitness during that time. So it's basically corporal punishment with physical exercise. Exactly. My 10th grade year, I tore my ACL at the beginning of the year. I got hit by a motorcycle in Rishikesh. And I was forced to hike him kit with a torn ACL. No. I'm not joking. And then all year, nobody believed me that something was wrong with my knee. So I was forced to do PT and yoga and smoking, which is numb, 
giving the whole school punishment by doing physical fitness on a tourney. Say that one oh, on your tourney ACL. So the whole group punishment, like if somebody does something wrong, they would punish a whole group type of thing. Mm-hmm. Like the whole school pun. Interesting. On your torn ACL. And it wouldn't be till much later that you found out it was actually a torn ACL because nobody was believing you that whole time. Nobody believed me. I was a pretty sick child. I got sick a lot. So the staff just believed I was being lazy. Oh, I just want to pause for this little you, this little you, because I can hear the narrative now, like, you know, that you're just believing yourself, you're just being negative, you know, just like the whole three, what I'm trying to say is the three HO narrative for anyone that isn't quote, keeping up. Mm-hmm. And you and I- get that whole thing, lazy, victim, yada, yada. I was not into the sports that they provided. I went, before I went to MPA, I did gymnastics. I did tap dance. I did things that I enjoyed that were physical, but they didn't have those there. So I was deemed lazy and not willing to participate, Mm. but that wasn't the case. It's just, you didn't offer the things that I was interested in. And I don't like soccer. I'm not good at basketball. I don't want to do those things. Mm. And if I want to do gymnastics and you don't offer it, I'm probably not going to want to participate in the other things you have to offer. Mm-hmm. And even just being set up like that as a child to have people in a staff position, putting you down for any of that right now, it just becomes this nasty cycle of you being gaslit over and over again and not being believed. And that as if it's a cycle of your own problem, as opposed to people in leadership, not listening. Exactly. And To be frank, I think medical neglect is a huge issue at MPA. Mm, mm, I said medical neglect. I broke my nose in ninth grade. I went to my staff member who was supposed to be taking care of me. She was having a party in her room. And I looked at her and I was like, my nose really hurts. I don't know what's wrong, but I think I need to go to the hospital. And she was like, no, you're fine. I was walking down the hall and Sada Bahar, who was the senior girl's caretaker, wasn't even taking care of me, looked at my nose, looked at me. She goes, your nose is crooked. You need to go to the hospital right now. She took me to the nurse and made sure I got on an ambulance to get my nose fixed. It took a reconstruction of my nose to be able to get it to work again. Oh my God. And that's not the only time Sada Bahar saved me from medical neglect. If I wasn't, like if she wasn't there during the time I was there, I would have died. And I know that. Wow. So you have this ACL, you have this broken nose, you obviously have some other physical things that happen. And there's, you have this one staff member that's paying attention, but it sounds like most of them aren't. 
Muslim didn't. Muslim didn't believe me. Muslim just thought I was lazy and didn't want to participate in things. But I was physically not doing okay. Not alone mentally. My mental status was being neglected altogether. Much less like you're talking about the things that interest you, you don't have now. So now you're actually being, you know, you're not finding areas of interest. Like, you know, maybe you were at home, plus you're already dealing with the attachment of, of being so young and away from your mom. I'm curious about being Indian, being adopted, and then going back to India in MPA, which is mostly an American school, but of, of three kind of Sikh Dharma ethos, how that was for you. So being outside in town, people expected me to, you know, know Punjabi and know exactly, excuse me, I'm going to drink some water real quick. Take your time, take your time. Know exactly what I was supposed to do. I did not. I am the most American Indian you're ever going to meet. My friends call me an Oreo. <laughs> Well, I mean, you were adopted young. Of course, you're going to be American. And this is why I'm saying I'm more concerned about how people perceived you and what they said to you or about you because of that. Definitely not made fun of in town because they were like, you don't know Punjabi. You can't speak to me in Punjabi. Like you're supposed to know what's going on. And I'm like, I don't trust me. I'm like, I have no idea of just like everyone else with me. Right. I'm and a mountain girl. You don't know. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, some people would just come up to me and start speaking to me in Punjabi. And I'm like, I don't know what you're saying, sir. So like, I'm sorry, I can't help you. But from the being adopted and seeing what we saw in Amritsar with the beggars and people being in such poverty. It was, even then, like, when I was a kid, it was still really hard for me because I knew in another life that could have been me. So that was a little bit hard to deal with because I knew I was in such a privileged place, even though I was being a hard time yes being neglected and being abandoned and and not getting your needs met it's like in compared to what is now a part of that in thought process right exactly because I'm like I have parents and they sent me to a school they have like I'm in a boarding school most people don't go to boarding school I grew up in Boulder which is one of the richest towns in America I am privileged, but I'm also abused and have mental trauma. So that duality is sometimes very hard to deal with. Let's pause there because the complexity of that is, it is very heavy and it doesn't discount your pain and your trauma and the things you've gone through and the things that are very real, like the voice that you spoke up around the pain of your knee or whether it's your nose or whether it's your stomach or whether it's your emotions or whether it, whatever, right? Just because it's not the beggar on the street doesn't make it not valid and real hurt. Mm -hmm. 
And it's so easy to kind of like self-neglect and be like, well, I should be grateful because it's not that. And it's like, no, no, no. That's kind of like the 3HO spiritual bypass. Instead, it's like, I am grateful for that. And it doesn't mean that I wasn't medically neglected. It doesn't mean that this person in positions of power should have taken care of me when I was 11 years old. And that was their job. Exactly. It was their job to take care of us. And it's their position of authority. It's what their, their, their whole persona and livelihood is based on. It's what you're being paid to do. It's what your title is supposed to be. And yet what is really holding the credibility for people to be able to do that if we have years and years or decades and decades of children being neglected and abused and it's called education. Exactly. I mean, even in things like women's camp and KYC, you can see the neglect. I was a product of KYC. I went from the time I was able to go to the time I was a guide. Like, I stopped going officially at maybe 21. Wow. And I didn't want to leave. I was in an admin position at that point. I loved KYC, but the person who was in charge didn't like the fact that I wasn't living a 3HO lifestyle outside of KYC. So she decided that I was not a good fit. Ooh, the layers. That's obviously years later when you're back from MPA and you're wor- working in your 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're you're adding in the complexity of being judged as you start making your own choices, but still staying connected to the community. Yes, definitely. How interesting. Um, I, I want to go back to the school before we come back because you just have such an interesting lens and we haven't heard from any, um, uh, we haven't heard from that many. Of course, we've heard from a few that went to MPA, um, but some went to more of the earlier schools. So like this real focus, we've heard a lot of, um, I've seen, I should say, I've seen stories about the abu- abuse and neglect and I've heard about the amount of students that came back and realized they didn't have any education at all. They couldn't get into a college, these types of things. And so I know you have a lot to say in this. I know medical neglect is just one. So I just kind of want to go back to MPA for you to keep sharing whatever else there that took place during those years. Cause you didn't just go for three years. You, you went for several more. Um, So um, MPA as a whole, I was bullied from my first year all the way till my 10th grade year after I, before I left. Um, it was kind of like Lord of the Flies and we took care of ourselves because we didn't have staff members looking out for us. We experienced everything ourselves. I mean, the bullying was just so terrible. I used to have people make songs about me and sing them 
about me being a dirty rat because my name is Ratna. And nobody did anything. I had a student steal my iPod, drag it around a classroom floor, and ask me to crawl around on my knee saying I'm a dirty rat to get him back. He did it on the face of the iPod too. So when I got it back, it was completely damaged. This was in front of my whole class and in front of teachers. And everyone just laughed, including the teacher. Oh. I think the mentality of picking on people who were smaller and more sensitive was a huge part of my MPA experience. It sounds like it was just like the interweb in all facets and all ages. So that sounds like the bullying was multifaceted from lots of places, or could you count on a handful of people that you had to um, protect yourself from, or was it just everywhere? It came from everywhere. I mean, there was no escape. There was no, I had friends, but you can't expect a child to be able to stop something that an adult should really be stepping in for. That's right. That's right. I got put in, we had two classes in 10th grade and I got put in the not smart class. And that whole year I would have people put drawings in my locker of absurd, weird, inappropriate things. Somebody put a used pad in my locker once. Oh, that's horrible. And like put it on a piece of paper. So, and I wasn't the only one who got bullied, but I think my bullying was to the biggest extent of what it could have been. It just sounds like it was from the moment you arrived and in, in all levels from the, from the leadership to the, uh, to your peers above and below. I feel like I was failed. I feel like even though I told my mom what was going on, the staff made her believe that it was being taken care of. Really? So you started communicating to your mom right away about it and then she believed whatever their response was as opposed to you. Exactly. Which made me feel like nobody believed me. Absolutely. And made me feel utterly alone. Yes. Which definitely affected my mental health as well, which is another topic that I feel like MPA is completely ignored. We have these, when I was there, we had this bamboo forest. And I remember getting really upset one day, asked the staff if I could talk to my mom. They were like, it's not the weekend. We can't let you call your parent. I remember crying, running into the bamboo forest and trying to figure out which one was strong enough so I could stab myself so I could get out of there. And nobody realized, nobody knew. 
no mental health support. And to add to it, the language was really about doing more yoga. Yeah. If you weren't strong like a yogi, then you would need to do more work on yourself. Do a 40-day meditation. Do a Kriya. That was always the answer. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's not the answer. No, most of the time it's not the answer. Actually, let's get clear. It's not <laughs> we now know. <laughs> um, it is not going to help somebody in that state. Yeah, and and the fact that we grew up in an ethos where mental health was actually um, discouraged, right? And a lot of us wouldn't even know that because when you grow up in something, you don't necessarily know that's the ethos you're operating in. And that, that the answer to everything that YB ever offered was a meditation, a diet, a yada, yada, right? And so if you have, as you spoke to your parents creating that ethos of consciousness and everybody's doing that, and then an entire school over time gets bred and that becomes the ethos of the consciousness, you're essentially saying that like that original imprint of what YB kind of put in place is what MPA stands for. And essentially it stands for neglect. Exactly. It stands for neglect of children who may or may not have chosen to be there. Mm, mm. And back to MPA, the education at MPA appalls me. When I was there, no one talked to me about colleges. No one even emphasized that college was an option. And luckily enough, my mom got her master's in occupational therapy. She went to school. She understood the value of education. And she always pushed the fact that after high school, I'm going to college. And MPA did not push that fact. They, I don't think they even cared about people leaving the 3HO community. They wanted to keep us in a bubble so we wouldn't get education so we would think what we were doing was the only way of life which is completely not true mm. how interesting and I'm sorry keep going keep going no, I have you go. questions no I have, I have questions but go ahead I want you to carry on and I mean I'm lucky enough to come from someone who believes in education, but if I didn't, I don't know where I would be. So when you did come back, right, you were supposed to return for the 11th grade year, but you stayed and then you ended up being able to go to college because you're reflecting back thinking, my mom is the one who implanted that in me because of her background, not, not any support that I got while I was in those fostering years of school. Exactly. And the reason I didn't go back I turned my ACL my 10th grade year. I came back to America after MPI. I saw one of the best orthopedic surgeons. And he was like, your meniscus, totally gone. Your ACL is torn to the point of no repair. And brainwashed self me was like, I actually want to go to solstice and children's camp before it gets repaired. Oh my so God. I went to solstice 
in children's camp and was like, I've dealt with this all year. Why can't I just wait off another month? Wow. So it was that year you were talking about the knee and then you come back um, and you see the specialist and you find out that your knee was really torn and, and nobody had believed you. Again, the gaslighting is heavy to listen to. This is just. The surgeon was like, we need to get you into surgery right now. And I was like, no, sorry. I have solstice and KYC and I'd rather go to those things than get my knee repaired. He's like, that could do more damage to your knee. And I was like, it's already damaged. Oh my God. I love how you said my brainwashed self. Yeah. I mean, like, I was like, I cannot miss something that I've gone to every year since I've been in America. And so I waited, I put the surgery off and I waited till after those events. Then I got my surgery done. They took a graft from the back of my knee and fixed it. I was on crutches. I was on a constant motion machine, which moves your knee up and down. And it took about six weeks to heal. I was supposed to go back to MPA the day before I was going back on my flight. I went to go get contacts for the year. And my eye doctor was like, oh, I see a problem in your eye. So I'm going to send you to a specialist. They sent me to a specialist and they're like, yeah, we actually see a big problem. We're going to send you to a specialist in Albuquerque. And I was living in Espanola. So we drove to Albuquerque, saw the specialist. They found out my retinas were detaching. Because I didn't get proper eye checks when I was early in school. And if I had gotten on the flight to go to India, I would have gone blind. Because the pressure of the airplane. So they were like, you're not going to India. They're they're like, we need to do surgery on you right away. So I had 12 surgeries at the end of that year to get my retinas fixed. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. And I want listeners to hear, I misspoke, you know, when I was reading your bio, I said, you didn't return for, uh, for mental health reasons, but it wasn't, it said for health reasons, that was what the bio said. And I had faux pas, but hearing the story, the ACL that while you were in India, you were speaking to this pain and you weren't believed, you know, then making the connection of getting your eyes checked and not getting it checked during all those years from fifth, you know, fifth in that's a regular thing. And when you're young, right. Getting regular eye checks. Mm-hmm. Whoa, keep going. Don't get on the school on the plane. Cause you would have gone blind. Oh my God. So, I mean, thank God I look back at that and I'm like, that probably also saved my life. Yes. Not only from going blind, but from being put back in a school that did not care about me. Now, can I ask you a question? Um, you know, you obviously went young. I know the ethos of the community in terms of the expectation to be in India and how that's quote so much better and all the things. But, you know, the expectation within your household was the three years. Why did you go back after that? Like in your own sense of yourself? Because I didn't know anybody in my hometown. Mm. I would have been 
again, alone. I had built friends who were my family, who were my support system at the time. Well said. Since I didn't have staff to do it, I built my own and I didn't want to leave that. And that's sad to think that those are the only people who are going to understand you. And I'm like, well, no one else is going to get what I've gone through. So Mm. why go to a place where I'm going to be an outcast again? I'd rather go back to my family that I built. Mm. Rewind and listen to that again, folks. That is so, (laughs) so true. And the complexity of that, the realness of that. And I know some of them were definitely trauma bombs, but at that time, I didn't know any different. I felt like I was getting kicked out of my family when I wasn't able to go back. I had no idea what I was going to do because that was my life. I knew no different. And I felt like people were going to judge me for not going back. I waited so long to be able to experience junior and senior year there because that was the years you were able to actually get to go into yourself and like experience fun things. And I was like, I put in all this effort and time and now I don't even get to reap the rewards of everything that I went through. Mm. What happens in the 11th and 12th grade? What kind of freedoms did the kids get that, that others didn't? So you get to go on some more trips and things like that. I know it's mostly for thought number science courses and things like that. But 12th grade year, you get to go on a class trip. And I know that isn't huge now thinking about it as an adult, but when you were a child and you see everybody every year go to these things, you want it. You're like, I earned this, like going to Thailand, going to Singapore, going to Australia. That's where some of the classes went. And I'm like, I want that time with my fellow students. Yeah, and um, I'm really hearing what you're what you're putting down here, and I want to um, add and ask simultaneously the element of what you're talking about with the, you're going to a Sat Number Science course or um, speak to how the graduates of MPA would be quote certified in level one Kundalini Yoga or I guess a teacher. So there's a status thing built into it. Obviously, there's a status of getting to be 11th and 12th grade to be able to then participate in these bigger events, whether it's a Kundalini training or whether it's a Satnam Rasayan or whatever. But there's also the element that you you get status by becoming a certified teacher and then you're ending up in this worldwide network of Kundalini yoga experiences. And speak to that because obviously that was, quote, sold as a part of the ranks. So definitely you feel kind of, I mean better than other people in a way once you have that and that's what was drilled into us having a certification in kundalini yoga 
doesn't mean much in the real world. I mean, yes, a lot of people do yoga, but when you're an MPA, it's drilled into you that that's the goal. That's like your ticket out. And then when you're not able to get that, you feel like you failed in a certain way and you didn't. But for a while after not going back, I felt like I failed because I wasn't able to obtain that kundalini yoga certificate. I wasn't able to do the things that my classmates were able to. And at Mm. that time, I felt less than. Mm. Mm. How did they drill it in? So you're painting the picture of how the highest vision of yourself would be to make it as the kundalini yoga teacher, like what that does for you in the world. And you're pointing out the reality as it does Jack's diddly squat, but the way it was sold within the ranks or within the ethos is entirely I mean, within the culture of MPA, it's just, they have student teachers teach yoga classes, you know, and things like that. They're like, they tell you that it's going to make you a better person. They drill it into you. You do kundalini yoga every day, five days a week. And, you know, when you practice and do something that much, you feel like that's what you're supposed to be doing. And, and you're pedestaled. Exactly. So let's and, add that element because when you're pedestaled for the thing that you're being sold to want, there's a part of you that then starts to want it because it felt so good to be pedestaled for that thing, whether you're the student exactly. teacher or whether you get put up at solstice to do a special Bhangra dance or some other teaching opportunity or something. And I never got that at MPA ever. Got I what? being put on a pedestal I was always kind of the person in the background I was shy I was sensitive and being able to have that like achieve that kundalini yoga certificate I felt like it would put me on the map kind of right that it would make you be noticed right like that was the ticket to all the corrections that you, you, your soul has to work out, so to speak. Exactly. So I could really feel the disappointment of when you can't go back because by this time you're indoctrinated, you know, you're like, this is what I want. Even though I've gone through so much, you're now on the striving path to become better and overcome yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Rather than seeing it for the abuse that it actually was that you were recognizing that it was but didn't know how to name per se. Didn't know how to name was too blind wash to see it for what it was, to be honest. And you're so young. How would you know it's anything other than what they're telling you it's supposed to be? Also growing up and being technically born into the 3HO community, that's all you know. You think what's going on is normal because that's all you grew up with. And if you have people in the 3HL community as your friends, then 
that's what they're normal to. So you don't feel like there's anything wrong with it till you take a bigger look. Yeah. Again, we haven't heard um, from too many uh, young people that have gone to MPA, uh, two, two maybe. Um, but I wanted to ask you like your lens because you're mentioning KYC and you're mentioning, you know, solstice. I have a very outside lens. And so I'm really asking for your perspective, like to help us as listeners understand the context of this and MPA, because I was at the yoga festival when MPA students would always get pedestaled on the stage to, to do some things. And then it was impressive. And then of course, everybody's oogling and awling and, and, and there's kind of like this, what felt like to me from the outside, even though I was still impressed was like a marketing campaign to get people to MPA. And they're using the students to do this kind of like performance aspect of why young people are better off as humans, as you talked about, if they go to MPA. And I imagine they also did that at Solstice. And we've heard a little bit of stories. Do you want to speak to that at all? I think, so I've gone to Solstice almost, I mean, for like 22 years of my life. MPA night is a complete- Hold on. That's what it's called, MPA night? Yes. See, we don't even know. You got to give us the full story. They had an MPA night at Solstice. So at Solstice, every year, MPA has a booth in the bazaar, but they have a night to show off MPA's best of best. And I'm using quotations here, guys. Um, So the best of the best are the students that are chosen. Exactly. So I was never chosen to participate in NPA. (laughs) Got it. Check. (laughs) My brother, who is very good at Gutka, always was. And they would have a night every solstice that... They would do bhangana dances and gutka performances, which is Indian martial arts, and talk about the school and rave about the school and say, send your students here. It will make them better. It will make them holy. It will make them understand the world of kundalini yoga. And it was a crock. I mean, they showed the best of the best students and basically it was a marketing campaign. Like you said, um, you know, they told great stories about how wonderful MPA is and they did it to a tantric shelter, which is a room of people every year. And a room of people who have just been indoctrinated for days on meditation, kundalini yoga and morning sadhana and, mm-hmm. and then getting this message, which was, which was something that was so obvious to me, but again, it didn't mean that I wasn't impressed. I was full on with the rest of them. Like, wow, that was impressive. MBA must really be a better version than the earlier India program. That's what was going on in my mind. So exactly. hearing you say that they chose this group, it must be painful. It it must, yep, okay. Yeah, so hearing you say, you know, that they're selecting the students, you know, as a kid, having gone to MPA and going to Solstice, how did, that must've just felt horrible. 
like to to I guess it was just kind of normal. It was kind of like, yeah, that's like the marketing campaign and you just kind of kept it moving and kind of did your own thing. Or what was it like? I don't know. Maybe that was a part of the hoopla of it all. I don't know. I honestly did not like to attend MPA night. It made me feel sick inside. Because I knew exactly what was going on there. And I didn't want to support a lie. And so I mostly, I mean, I used to go to them as kids and I used to go to them when my brother was performing, but in my head, I was just like, you're doing a Gutka performance and a Bangada performance and talking about how great the school is. I just wanted to stand up and scream. You don't know exactly what's going on here. Yeah. (laughs) They are using your money we are not being taken care of. We have nobody to turn to. So eventually I just stopped going. Yeah, I hear you. I hear that. That blew my mind, I think, the most. I, I think I went to the yoga festival in 2017 and 18. And I remember seeing the MPA night and uh, whatever they did there. And obviously it's different than Solstice. I think Solstice is a much bigger hoopla. But either way, the feeling of it was very much um, just like what you're talking about. And But thinking about that, if you're a child and you said, I went to them when I was young and you've watched this every year, right? Like there's this layers of indoctrination of this, right? And this yeah. brings me back to the troubled teen industry, how you're talking about the parallels because it would be around 2018. I'm teaching, a, um, I, I'm teaching Kundalini Yoga at the time and Um, I remember this girlfriend of mine was talking about her troubled teen and they're going through all these issues. And again, I had gone to the yoga festival a couple of times and seen this MBA performance. So I said, well, you could send them halfway across the world to India. I know it's, I know it's maybe not ideal, but it's, it's gotta be pretty similar to um, sending them to one of these programs, but less money and they're getting a world experience. But I, seeing the correlation of the abuse of that is just such, it's such a, an interesting parallel and a necessary one to call something for what it is, as opposed to wrapping the spiritual bow tie around it. As you said, do some gutka, do some bhangra, but what's the real substance and ability and capacity of the school? Exactly. And I mean, ever since working in psychology I've definitely taken an interest in the troubled teen industry and there's a lot of different versions of what you can do in the troubled teen industry but what I compare NPA to the most is a therapeutic boarding school um describe more explain to us to us what that means So a therapeutic boarding school is a boarding school that you can send troubled teens to that will help modify their behavior and make them exceptional citizens, which is basically, in so many words, what MPA was trying to do to the 3HL community, make us exceptional humans. 
but what's hiding underneath all of this stuff is abuse and neglect and kids not being able to communicate with their parents and kids not being able to be heard or listened to. And that causes a lot of damage. My parents didn't believe what was going on when I was there because they assumed the Searsing Sub would not have started a school that fostered such neglect. And it did. There was no relief. There was no safety. I couldn't turn to anybody. And that's what a lot of teens in the troubled industry feel like. Because these structures and systems are set up to kind of um, deprive, right? So that you can, quote, get the person back on track, right? And so there's kind of all these built-in loopholes around why this person shouldn't, quote, be believed. And yet it's a real form of kind of built-in manipulative structures, which is all the more reason why a school that's, quote, therapeutic has to be structured properly and have the right people in place to really support full round, not just be able to do the corporate punishment side, but not be able to offer any other support um, and not actually give a real education either. No, and not focus on just education, not just mental health, not just student life, but all of it. They need to focus on all of it. And I'm not saying programs in America are 100% great or effective. There's changes that can be made all over. But if you're sending your child halfway across the world, you should know that they're being protected and being treated with decency and respect because you're paying a lot of money to be able to do so. And I was there. I went to MPI. We did not get what we were paying for. Our conditions that we lived in may have been better than other schools, but our parents were paying so much money, we should have had the best of the best. And they did not care. It went into somebody else's pocket because it clearly did not go into the students. Well, we had already, we've already heard some about the early India program money laundering. And I'm curious about um, how MPA created its own legitimacy. And we know that the whole ethos and foundation of the school is quote, based on the Siri Singh Sahib's teachings. So it's already rooted in corruption and darkness and deceit, um, which is what you're speaking to. I mean, you're just speaking all around. It's trying to set, what I hear you saying is it's trying to set itself up as if it's a therapeutic boarding school, but it's not providing the services that would really allow themselves to be a legitimate therapeutic boarding school if they were really offering the services that they need to be offering to be considered that. Exactly. And, you know, it's just 
trust, like you're trusting them to take care of you and you see how much money your parents are paying. Hmm. Where's the money going? Why are we not hiring people who are actually credentialed into taking care of your children? Children are the most precious thing out there. Why put them in an environment that they're not going to succeed in? And I promise you they will not succeed if you send them halfway across the world with no supervision. No support system and no food. I mean, if you're talking about basic areas of, of uh, support, right? You're talking about the hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. right? And they use that against us to manipulate us. Those four basic hierarchy of needs, they did it to keep us under control. Oh, you have snack at a certain time, you cannot have more snack. Um, you know, if your food had bugs in it, you know, so what? Like we're giving you nutrition. Wow. The school's still open, isn't it? The school just reopened this week. Um, because it, since COVID it hasn't been open. So they closed on Holly, which is an Indian holiday, two years ago, and they reopened on Holly 2023. Which was when? Which was this week, actually. Just recently, okay. They opened their doors, um, I think, March, I'm sorry, April first or I mean second third so they've been open for one week now you're the first one to really speak out on NPA on this podcast but we have um, heard a lot of stories about the neglect and the academic lack of academic certification and um, the bullying culture the Lord of Flies culture and how you know that was you know a real spawn from the earlier but that NPA really became a real solidified system of that you know from the from the staff all the way down, because this is the first school where the staff are actually kids that attended India boarding schools within the 3HO system. So I want people to really hear the complexity because we're talking about MPA became the, the latter school that was quote, the original vision of, of YB. And Mm -hmm. so by this time it's, you know, it's really solidified and the whole um, who you would refer to Jugget, who's the, who's the head guy, like, you know, this is a kid who was born into, to the, into 3HO. He's been born and bred to be in this particular position. Um, and it's still running. So what I guess I'm trying to point out here is that even though we have heard about this culture of abuse, the culture of non-academics, the culture of lack of certification of staff, the culture of staff bullying and neglecting and abusing amongst a myriad of other real experiences that you all have gone through. And yet here the school's opening, what changes have been made from what I've seen in the conversations, nothing. The same people are in positions of leadership. I don't know if they have any new certification or staff. I'm curious if you know. So I have a, my mom that's rolled very much on the 3HL community. She's in Española. Yes, she is an Espanola. So she has a member who is on the board who's saying they're trying to make changes for people who are accredited. But 
I don't think that's enough. I don't. No, it's not enough. What do you mean you're trying, but the school's back open? What does that mean? I honestly don't know. They're saying that they want to fix problems, but they're opening it back up before they've even tried to fix any issues. Well, it's kind of like solstice is happening and they haven't addressed a damn thing in any public space. So what the heck is going on? Exactly. I mean, so yes, they agree that, quote unquote, they agree that there are issues that need to be taken care of. But in my mind, from what I'm seeing, they've done nothing. They opened it up as a day school right now, but there's only a matter of time till they try and open it up as a boarding school again. So what do you mean a day school? It's in India. So they have Indian students going to MPA as a day school, which irritates me because what are you trying to do? Indoctrinate Sikhs who are already Sikhs into the 3HO lifestyle? That's another cultural appropriation. Double what entendre. Do you Let's culturally and, appropriate and then appropriate some culture. <laughs> and you're getting money for them for what? And it's so fascinating because there is um, a, a certain classification of, of Indians and Indian Sikhs that are super fascinated by the 3HO ethos of the Kundalini world and all the things that, you know, are are false identity as bred into a solidification of persona in the world. And that's so interesting. So now they're a day school where Indian kids and families are going to the 3HO school. Yes. But right now they don't have American students there unless they're living in India. Yes. So like their family, obviously, so like him and his wife, they have kids, so their kids could attend the day school, obviously. I'm not sure if Jagat Guru is there at that point. Oh, he's not arrived. So they just opened it up from the Indian lens, but they haven't gone back to Rana yet. I do know there is one woman, I do not know her name, but she is there overseeing the school. I saw pictures of her. I follow the Midi Pity Academy page on Facebook. And I, that's how I found out that they were open, actually. And so I saw pictures of her and tried to do a little research because I am, like anybody else these days, an internet sleuth. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We've kind of jumped your timeline in a little bit, but I want to fill in a a little bit of context, if you don't mind. Um, You had talked about... um, working at KYC and um, somebody kind of like giving you grief for not living the quote 3HO lifestyle. So obviously you're back in the US, but you're still connected to the community. How did your mom take it when you start kind of doing your own thing? Um, Because you mentioned that person, but I wasn't sure how that related back to your family. So let's jump back a little bit. My dad semi-left the 3HO community when I was 11. He cut my hair when I was 12, which appalled the entire Española community, which kind of made me a pariah. I had friends' parents tell them, oh, you shouldn't hang out with her. She cut her hair. And so that kind of made me a pariah. I went back to MPA. But by the time I was 
15, I knew this lifestyle wasn't for me. I knew it wasn't inclusive and very judgmental. And I got my first tattoo when I was 16 because my dad let me get one as a birthday present and I wanted to be rebellious. <laughs> so nice. I did. So and this is about 2013-ish. 2013-ish, yep. And mm-hmm. I still liked my friends in the 3HO community and wanted to be a part of KYC since I loved it. It was like my second home. And even though I wasn't living the 3HO lifestyle by that time, I abided by it while I was at Solstice and while I was at KYC. But um, by the time I was a young adult, I knew who I was and I knew I wasn't part of the community. Yeah. And I knew a lot of people did not like that, but like I did you could not feel their judgment. You oh, I their judgment, but you just kept it moving and just kept being. I, I verbally heard their judgment when mm. I was. So I went to school for two years in America. I went to a party when I was in senior year for a just like a New Year's party. And I drank a little alcohol. I had a parent's friend find out about that. They told the whole community that I was an alcoholic. What? At like 17 or 18. So I had that reputation going on for me. People were like, oh yeah, she's an alcoholic. You don't want her around your kids. Wow. And I was like, I went to a party. I drank a little. as a teenager. Yeah. I so a what? sip of beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but so I had that reputation going around and I wasn't partying like hard or anything but people did not trust me in the Sikh community anymore so I got moved to administration at KYC because they thought that would be a better position for me after working there since I was 14 I worked there in administration for one year and I wore wore a head covering while I was there, did not break any rules, but the person who had taken over KYC said, oh, I think this is your last year working here. We're not going to hire you again. You're not graceful enough, G. Nope. And it was because I fought the fact that they kids usually have a movie night at KYC and they were going to take it away because they didn't think it was appropriate for kids to be staring at a screen for two hours oh my god and I was like look Wait, what year is this this was um 2019 2018 oh my gosh folks are you hearing this I can't even believe that this is still the conversation I thought this is what happened in the 80s and 90s we're talking about 2019 yeah so they they said no we don't want kids watching the movie and I fought for it I was like look when I went to KYC we would have an all-night movie night of Star Wars they would play all the Star Warses at once and you're freaking out about them watching one movie I was like that's not acceptable 
And they're like, no, we can do a sing-along instead. I'm like, oh. and she's like, I don't think you're getting the point of KYC. <laughs> Did y'all hear that? We can do a sing-along instead. <laughs> they're like, this is called the youth camp, not movie watching time. <laughs> I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. No, back to the future or something. <laughs> we can do a sing-along with, uh, you know, KYC songs or something. Oh my God. Did they forget that YB was going to the movies all the time? And, you know, putting butter in his popcorn. And oh, I'm dying over here. Wow. Yeah. But, oh, yeah. No, I thought that was hilarious. And I was like, and then some of the people who actually worked for 3HO and like Sikh Dharma were like, we will write you a reference for any job. Like, we know you're a good worker. And I'm like, I know I'm a good worker. I have experience and I have an education. So going back to KYC for what, $500 for the two weeks that I work there, not gonna kill me if I don't have that. And they also paid guys more than they paid girls guy guides got at least a hundred more dollars than the girl guides just because even in 3HO they decide to pay females less because we're not worth it wow even though we're 10 times stronger and 10 times smarter or whatever they said 10 times something um Jesus oh my god this is just nuts so and I loved KYC when I used to go there. It was my, like I said, my second home. I'm sitting in front of a picture of, my mom had a picture of Rob Doss Putty commissioned. And I'm sitting in front of a picture of the road up to Rob Doss Putty. It's a painting that I have on my desk. Mm. Because although... I got kicked out of KYC. It was still some of the happiest times of my life. And I know I was being brainwashed. You're right. You knew it during the time and you still enjoyed it. Exactly. Right? <laughs> that painting that is- brings me joy for some reason. Well, and I also kind of want to point out that like, that's not just you, right? That's, that's, that's such a, at least this is my observation. My observation is they, when I was teaching, and in and, and these years, it's kind of in the similar years that you're talking about, which is why I'm referencing it between the, you know, the years of say 2015, 16, 17, 18, right? Um, mm-hmm. What I was noticing in the ethos of the Kundalini Yoga community, because I'm teaching, but I'm also kind of like you, I'm noticing like, well, that's hmm, interesting because I've been out for so long and then I'm starting to teach. The palpable difference when a student would go to solstice and come back in terms of their hook, line, and sinker into the lifestyle mentality, it was so definitively obvious. Now, I hadn't gone to Solstice since I was 16, mind you. So I'm hearing about it, but I don't really have much interest to go. I guess I'm just speaking to the power of whatever the hell they're doing to market this sucker. Um, Whether it's marketing MPA at Solstice or just marketing Solstice, the camaraderie, the connection, the atmosphere that you're feeling that you liked so much. Mm-hmm. 
and that, crafted. It's a part of the whole thing, right? It's not by accident that you leave saying that feels so good. And one of my biggest drives and reason to go to Solstice was to see my friends that were like me, who yes. I could feel connected to. I mean, especially after going to MPA and then going home and not having any friends, you're like, oh, it's yeah. like a reunion. I get to see my friends. And then if we do KYC, we get to spend more time together. So yes, you're like, you're drawn to that because you're like, that's my community. That's my family. I don't know what to do without them. So I'm going to go. I'm going to go do that. Yes. Oh. It's so nostalgic. And I'm wondering from a, from a mental health perspective, nostalgia is so linked to our trauma bonding. Um, it's okay to have trauma bonds that we need and want and love, right? Just because they're a trauma bond doesn't make them any less nourishing. In fact, it makes them more nourishing. So it's such an interesting point you're making around, yeah, there's nothing like that became the family unit. Mm-hmm. And- a sense of normalcy, being understood, right? It's like, why wouldn't you want to go back to that place? I'm not super close with any of my class now. As yeah. an adult, I don't talk to very many people in the 3HL community, mm. except for my quote-unquote sister. Um, she and I grew up together in 3HL. We've known each other since we were babies. We're both not a part of the 3HL community anymore, but we went to MPA together. We've lived our entire lives together, and it's nice to have somebody who understands it. You don't have to explain all of it to you. just can share a thing, and it's like, oh. They get it. It's mm. just, they get it. And it's really nice to have that. And I've let go of some of my other trauma bonds that didn't serve me. But having a part, a piece of the community still, even though we're both not involved in it, I am thankful that it gave me some people that I know I couldn't live without. Yeah, yeah, well said. Yeah, and I think that the statement I made on trauma bonds wasn't so much for you, but for listeners, I think people really struggle once you hear a concept like that, and then you realize that your whole life was kind of built on trauma bonds. It can be a little overwhelming and discouraging to realize, I don't know if I know of relationships that aren't trauma bonds, you know? Um, and like, kind of just a sense of kind of like, it's okay. Because sometimes those relationships do span, right? And, and you move through if both people, if that happens. But sometimes they don't. And, and that's our own healing process is what I hear you talking. Everyone has their own healing process. And it's completely okay to feel what you feel when you feel it. Mm, mm, so true. And recognize that, a, you know, that a connection could have really helped at a certain stage. And then at another stage, it might not be as, as plenty. And then there might be another stage where there's a reconnection and, and just kind of like letting things move as they're supposed to move untangle as they need to untangle and reform if it's meant right but but not in the oblig obligatory ways in which we were forced to put a smile on and to keep up as if everything's fine when we really aren't 
able to share our inner self. Exactly. And I mean, living in such close quarters with everybody too, when you do have an issue with somebody, it's hard to be able to process it and deal with it. But once you get some space and time from it, space and time definitely helps heal a lot. Yeah. And then hearing that the things we went through are called something, right? That it's not just what you personally endured, but that these things actually have names and contexts within abusive institutions. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah. And I think a lot of what you've shared today really speaks to that, that what I felt listening to you was that as, as an 11 year old, when you're engaging through this and even growing up, like you're aware of what's not good, but it's normal too. So it's like, what do I have to compare it to? And it's like, what other choice do I have? And so you're kind of making a choice of, do I want to go do this or do I would rather do this? And you realize, I think I'd rather do this, which it's a, it's like, which neglect would you choose or which abuse or, or which it's complex to look back at it now, but in the moment, like you're just a kid, it's not up to you to decide these things. And you're, you're being given these very adult decisions without getting any support around how to guide yourself through them. Completely. I agree with that. And it sucks being a kid that doesn't have guidance and doesn't have somebody checking in on them every day, which I feel is so important. And then let's add, it sucks to be in an institution that thinks that's okay. Yeah. That as a normal state of being that, that they're an old soul. So they don't need blah, 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 blah. Right. As if kids don't need normal, healthy development because they're, we're fucking yogis or something. Being a yogi does not mean you don't need to check up on a child and ask them how their day is. Or touch, right. Or, or food or choices around when they want to eat or not eat any of those things. Right. Hugs. Hugs. Hmm. Hugs. Being loved is a essential part of feeling safe. And if you don't feel loved, and I did not feel loved at MTA, hmm. and I'm sure other people did not either, hmm. but being loved and being feeling like you have somebody who has your back makes or breaks your childhood. So true. And when you're born into not having support systems, you think that that's just a normal childhood and that we're evolved souls because that's what they're telling us that we are. Be strong like a yogi. And if you're not strong like a yogi, you're weak. And we don't deal with the weak. We strengthen them. We toughen them up. We tell them you're tougher than this. You can't cry. Yogis don't cry. Neither Mm. should you. Mm. Mm. What I'm finding super fascinating about the institutional abuse of MPA is that it really, really, really represents the solidification of the teachings in real time form. And what I mean by that is the Kundalini Yoga quote, teachings and ethos of teacher trainings are carrying on around the world, as we all know. And this school serves as a function to indoctrinate another young generation 
into this ethos and system, YB system of abuse through yoga and through um, abuse of our consciousness. As an institutional part of the Kundalini yoga teacher training system, because we all know Kundalini yoga teacher trainings, you have to go to solstice. If you go to solstice, you end up having to go to MPA night and guess what you do every year, sometimes twice a year, not including tantrics in between. Are you painting the, right? She's painted a picture for us here. And then you're just one child as an example of your experience, but how many more? And, and this is such an important point because it's the net that brings the, another generation in. And here you are knowing you're not happy, but where else do you have to go? You don't, you don't have anywhere else to go. You go to what you have available to you in the 3HL community and the MPA community is all you have to turn to. You're going to turn to them. And you're going to believe they're going to help you because that's all you've had. That's right. And then you start believing the systems they're telling you about what's wrong with you and, and that what's, you know, and so you end up on this inner tyranny. The external abuse turns into internal abuse and that's its own form of internalized and decontextualized trauma. Exactly. And the only way we're going to break this cycle is to shut down places that indoctrinate people like this, especially because you're not just indoctrinating a child, you're indoctrinating their parents and making them believe that this is the best place for their child. And the only way they're gonna survive is to send them to this place. The only way they're gonna be functional, beautiful yogis that stay in the 3HO community to make change. No, they do not deserve to be open. If this was an accredited school, they would have lawsuits up the wazoo. Mic drop, truth. That's what I have to say on that. Um, it's sinister, folks. This is no joke, okay? It's really, really no joke um, what, what you're bringing us here. Um, but also that this school is remaining in uh, existence and this marketing campaign, the marketing funnel that happens at all these yoga spaces, you're indoctrinating these parents who are like full-on in the ethos of their kundalini yoga life changing their name, changing their diet, changing, you know, the, all the things that we know that start happens in the um, Aquarian Academy and regular attendees of solstice and yada, yada, and regular attendees. And what extra is this is if you want to know the impact of the indoctrination of a parent and then the child, the impact on the child, go back and listen to Olivia's episode. You know, where she ends up, her mom ends up abused by Satnam Rasai and Guru Dave Singh. And then the daughter ends up abused by Satnam Rasai and Guru Dave Singh, you know, and it's, it's a normalized ethos because the kid has nowhere else to turn, you know? And so it's like, remember what it means to bring your child into a yoga environment where they're teaching you that you don't have parental rights over your child because 
fill in the blank of the yogic teachings. And troubled teen industries, parents sign their rights away to have their kids be taken care of and healed. MPA and any parent who has sent their child to India has also signed their rights away. I don't think people understand that enough. You are signing your rights away to your child. You are signing them up for whatever, staff members, whatever environment they're going into. You're the one saying, okay, yeah, you can do it. And then you have a school that will hide institutional abuse right. to save their own ass. And right now, they're probably marketing it as a different thing to try and avoid all the lawsuits and all the bad publicity that comes with it is because that's what these institutions do. Unless you get them shut down, they will market it a different way. Right. And then you can get people to come. It's called rebranding, folks. That's what they do. That's what all, all these organizations do and larger and larger. They just rechange the name and they keep it moving. Uh, so it's so true what you're saying. And it's so important to shut institutional institutions like this down that have a history of operating uncredentialed and with a long trail of abuse that's not being addressed by the institution itself. Exactly. And the only way that's going to happen is we have people with voices and stories who are able to share what they went through, especially in MPA. I know we have a lot of people who have come forward from a little bit older generation talking about their experience. But Midi Pity Academy itself, the way they ran it, the way the staff ran it, the way they ignored pretty much everything unless you were a star student needs to stop. Right. You don't have to be doing long and cars for two and a half hours to be able to get some basic needs and attention. You know, you don't have to be the star studded, wake up for sadhana at 4 a.m. and be the perfect yogi, 40 day, yada, yada to, to get anything. And this is a really, really important thing because when you're a child of this Dharma, you grow up learning, you have to perform, you have to perform yoga to get her needs met to get fed, to be touched, to be hugged, to be loved, to be delighted in, to be anything. And none of that is okay because it really, really disrupts our early attachment. Um, I want you to speak to your Instagram profile because this is how I found you. I saw that you are speaking out about MPA, what you just said. People, there are a lot of you that have gone to MPA. There are a lot of people that have never spoken out their story that are absolutely clear that what they went through was institutional abuse. And they got words for it, but maybe they don't know where they can come to speak it. So let us know what you're doing and, uh, and why you're passionate about speaking out about it. So I started a Instagram page called MPA Code Silence, which is a term that we use in the troubled teen industry a lot about people keeping secrets and not sharing the abuse that they went through. 
and I don't think the abuse of MPA is talked about enough. I don't think our stories are being shared. And I wanted to give us a space to be able to just be honest and really show people what students went through, what I went through, what my friends went through from what my classmates went through. Because, and educate people on what institutional abuse is, what the troubled teen industry is. And hopefully it will help somebody want to share their story or understand that they're not alone. And I open the page because I cannot sit back and watch institutional abuse keep happening. If we don't try and stop the cycle, it's going to keep going. Yep, absolutely. It's just get rebranded and keep going. And if it's not in this form, it's in another form. Absolutely. And I'm fighting for that to not happen. I am fighting for us to have a voice, for us to believe survivors that come forward and tell them the truth of the matter. Because so many survivors are being ignored. So many survivors are being pushed aside and it's time to stop that. It's time to listen and believe and break code silence. Make sure that people know what you're getting into. And full disclosure, right? Full disclosure, offer consent. Trust the fact that people can make a change if they're loud enough. Yes, trust that that people can make change. That's my goal of opening that Instagram handle. And I do share some personal stories on there about what I went through and just information on how proper staff should treat students. Like if it was a regular teen, troubled teen in, uh, institution, how, how, that, how it should be run versus how it's being run, so to speak? Exactly. So like kind of giving comparisons that it's okay to have a troubled teen institution, but there's a difference between an institution that is operating healthily and functionally functioning to serve an outcome called help troubled teens versus saying you're doing that and you're actually just re-traumatizing. Exactly. I mean, the troubled teen industry is a billion dollar industry a year and if you run a troubled teen program correctly, and MPA students aren't even troubled teens. No. We, our students that our parents chose <laughs> and halfway across the world, consent or not, I mean, well said. we deserve to have a school that runs properly. And if you're going to call it a therapeutic learning school, you better make it act like a therapeutic learning school. Healthy therapeutic learning school in the end of that. Yeah, especially if you're basing it off of a yoga culture. 
Exactly. Yogis are supposed to be quote unquote happy, healthy souls that help people. You're not born into 3HO, that is. (laughs) 3HO is not (laughs) and that's just my opinion Uh, it's mine as well it is mine as well I'm right there with you this has been very illuminating um and I know you have a lot more inside you so is there any more that you want to make sure you say here and get out in terms of what you what you've been through what you have to say and what you want listeners to hear about MPA or any part of your experience therapy helps talking to people helps and understanding that what you went through is not normal and it's okay to have those feelings. And it's taking me a long time to wanna share my story and that's okay because everyone heals at their own time. There's stuff that happened at MPA that I'm still not comfortable talking about, but maybe one day I'll be able to share it. I think it's really important for listeners to hear that, that it's okay to share our story when we're ready, if we're ever ready. And it's also okay to share parts of it, that we don't have to reveal all things. There are places in us that are more tender and and these things aren't ready to come out. We haven't processed or untangled them enough. And how true that is, that you can learn to listen to what's right for you and honor that. Well, thank you so much. Do you have any other questions? No, I didn't want to say thank you. Um, It is a really, really important um, thing of what you're doing to break the code of silence. I've spoken to this quite a bit around breaking the code of silence and shame and secrecy. And that the only way that predatory patterns can really thrive, narcissistic patterns. um, And it is really important to point out that a lot of what you've brought up in the episode. I want listeners to hear that institutional abuse happens not just because of individuals, but because of the system that upholds those individuals. So as we've seen in the last number of years, Jagat Guru didn't have much response. You know, he didn't have much to say, although from a compassionate place, he wanted to, he just, he, he couldn't feel or hear what people were really saying because he's in this institutional position of power. That's my take. Um, and he is a young person that grew up in this community as is his wife. And so there's this interesting complex web, just as we've heard from uh, a former episode of a student who was that high-performing yogi who became a staff member who kind of was upheld as, you know, playing Gurbani Kirtan and, you know, like all the ways that we end up perpetuating abuse because we're pedestaled as the righteous ones. Or in your case, you were never pedestaled. So you could start to see the dynamic more clearly because you're never one of the quote chosen ones. Either way, I want everybody to really hear what was brought to this episode because it's texture rich. That's what it is. It's texture rich. And it speaks to the long-term impact of what the 70s, the 80s, the 90s created that is a strong solidification of an institution that doesn't seem to be going anywhere but needs to be shut down. 
So when we look at those types of things, we have to look at 3HO within the context of things like, say, the Catholic Church, Boy Scouts of America, right? These types of things go on. This is institutional abuse, and it doesn't end. But one of the ways that we end it is by breaking the code of silence. It's cutting through to say, wow, what can I really do? Well, I can speak. I can share my story. I can heal. I can commit to speaking out to say, yeah, this is not okay. And that's what you're doing. So I just want to say thank you for that. And that's how we met. Like, I just noticed your Instagram handle. And I was like, hey, I, I know we don't know each other, but do you want to tell your story? Because if somebody has an Instagram handle and they're outwardly speaking, it means they've reached a place in their own healing that maybe they want to speak out. And it's okay if somebody doesn't. So anyway, I just want to say that I appreciate our interaction. And I really appreciate you bringing your perspective and lens and your voice um, to this platform, but also just out into the world so that other people, I know there are a ton more MPA students that don't know where to tell their story, don't know it's, if it's safe and don't know where to go. And I hope that this episode reminds people um, that there are places to go and there, it might not be here, but it could be your platform. It could be somewhere and that your story matters and what they went through. What'd you say? What you went through is not normal and it's not okay. Well, thank you so much. So before I let you go, I just want to ask, um, tell us why you chose this song. Um, it really does speak to me and the fact that I felt like I was kind of forgotten while I was at MPI. And I know a lot of other people probably feel that too, but this song really brings to light how I felt and hopefully how many other people felt while they were attending such a intense boarding school. Mr. Forgettable by David Kushner. This is the song of choice. As always, we don't listen to the whole song because of copyright, but be sure to check out the link in the show notes to be able to listen to the playlist. And here we go. I know that you're waiting for me like a dog. But have some patience for the part of me that's lost. been a hundred times when I don't recognize any of you that love me I try to memorize and identify but it's all getting foggy my head is in the clouds right now just pray I come around around I was getting chills just from that beginning. Thank you so much <laughs> for that song. Be sure to listen to the full song as each episode really brings story to life. I want to thank you again for your time with us today and for sharing um, yourself so vulnerably, but also for your passionate voice about uh, institutional abuse and, and what it really means to be cared for, what it really means to be loved, and what it really means to be a child that deserves uh, simple, basic needs as a part of our everyday existence.
Thank you so much. As always, folks, this has been another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. If you'd like to contribute to this broadcast, you can make a one-time or monthly donation at gurunishan.com slash uncomfortable conversations. You can also follow me on my new platform um, and podcast at gurunishan.substack.com. And to be a guest, please email me at gn at gurunishan.com. Click into the show notes and you can get all of those links much more simply. You can also grab a hold of Ratnava, um, uh, your Instagram handle and be sure to put Ratnavali's Instagram into your follow so you can spread the word and make sure MPA students, if you are an MPA student, come forward and share your story when you're ready. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll talk to you on the next episode.